0: The very <laughs> smart brothers. Panama, hi. It's Oprah so Winfrey. I'm going to tell you, I don't know you, but I love you.
1: This, this podcast pod is, is, is fantastic. Every nigga is a star. Every nigga is a star.
0: Everybody, welcome to Pastor the Peas. I am your host, Panama Jackson, and I am joined today by an award winning writer, author, fellow Morehouse brother. Hey. Uh, perhaps one of the more famous ones. We'll get to that in a second. That's <laughs> something I didn't realize the first time I had the opportunity to talk to him. <laughs> and uh so yeah, I want like everybody to put your hand your virtual hands together for Tope for hey. How are you
1: doing,
0: brother? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah man glad to have you here and um the reason why I mentioned one of the more famous ones is because I did not realize why I knew your name when um when I first met you we first talked and it's because I realized that you are one of our Rhodes scholars. Yeah. You're one of yeah. the, the Morehouse College like there's five Morehouse uh four, five Morehouse grads who are also Rhodes scholars and those, those it's like this list of names that I just know because of the accomplishments. Ah. Oh. <laughs> And I was like, man, I feel like I know this brother from somewhere, and that's where it was. So um, quite yeah. the accomplished chap we oh, have here.
1: I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And, you know, getting that was um, it was really important. It was at a time in my – a lot of people who go to HBCUs and Morehouse specifically can probably relate to this story, but mm-hmm. I was in a pretty bad way before that happened. I was actually living on my my friend's floors. You know, I would um, had been more or less been kicked out of school, and then – oh wow. Um, yeah, it was really difficult. I just come back from some time abroad and somebody in Gloucester Hall, I'm, 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 <laughs> this is inside baseball, but <laughs> somebody <laughs> had, <laughs> had abandoned or, or lost my financial aid information. And so, uh, you know, what actually happened was that I was I remember this vividly. This was back in 2000, 2003. I was um, I was sitting on my friend's floor and I just watched uh, Malcolm X. And I don't know if you remember at the end of Malcolm X. Uh, he kind of Spike Lee, that is shouts out the, everybody who provided funding for the film because apparently he couldn't get studio funding from it. So like, you know, this wonderful list of sort of black superstars are, are kind right. of lighting across the screen. Yeah. And I got this idea. I said, you know, hey, I'm about to be kicked out of school, so maybe I should like write like a bunch of black people, and maybe some one of them will help me out. And so I started this one person letter writing campaign. Wrote a bunch of folks. And a couple weeks after I started this campaign, they called me into the financial aid office and said that um, I had gotten some money from Oprah. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that I think I think it might have been a kind of, you know, sort of um, coincidence in some ways, because I hadn't applied for. I I don't know how they distribute these Oprah Winfrey scholarships, but after this campaign, I got this um, this uh, this Hmm. money. And then fast forward a few months, I won the Rhodes Scholarship. And the following year, um, Oprah got a Candle in the Dark award. And so um, she wrote me a letter and she said, hey, I'd love to meet you. And so we, we sat down together at Candle in the Dark um, and we had this wonderful conversation. And then after that, the day I graduated, she wrote me another letter and said, you know, congrats on graduating and everything else. So um, at least for that year, she was like my guardian angel in a way. And that was um, super helpful in terms of my trajectory at Morehouse. So. Yeah. You know how you have
0: a conversation and you have no idea where it's going to go, but it's like way better than you expected. <laughs> like immediately we went to damn near kicked out of Morehouse to Gloucester Hall shenanigans <laughs> for anybody listening. That's our administration building at Morehouse. Yeah. That's where everything happens. Yeah. Um. We got Oprah. We got Rose scholarships. We got full financial aid. I mean, yeah. listen, living the dream. <laughs> and to tell the truth. So I got to Morehouse in when did you graduate? Oh, four. Oh, four. OK, so I graduated in oh one. So I got there in ninety seven. Yeah. And I also was on, I was on scholarship Yeah, every single year that I was at Morehouse. They took my scholarship away. Yeah. Not for any good reason. My yeah. grades were just fine. But yeah. for some reason I was on I was on uh, probation, financial probation every single year yeah. because was... they lost my paperwork. And I would just go in a building and show yeah. them the actual physical copy of yeah. my scholarship. And they'd be like, oh, that's cool. And they just push a button. Oh. <laughs> Every year, I promise, every single year.
1: That is a quintessential Morehouse story. Love to Morehouse, you know, and I have a lot of friends who went there, and, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today without Morehouse. But, you know, you did. You had to earn the degree in more ways than one. Man,
0: (laughs) that is is a great way to say you earned that degree because everybody I know had some type of issue. All of us, even all the scholarship kids, right, where there was still some significant hurdles you had to climb in order to ensure – yeah. That you walked across that stage and I don't know if they did it when you graduated. The day of graduation, they were still pulling people out of line.
1: Oh, like, I guess yeah, I remember they were that. Still <laughs> pulling people out of
0: line. Um, as we're about to <laughs> like, nope. at at Morehouse, we graduated at eight o'clock in the morning, right? Like so which yeah. makes the night before graduation really stressful because people yeah. are all out partying. You basically yeah. go a party and go straight to graduation. I saw at least two people that I remember get pulled out of the graduation line day Let's of see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's really sad, because if there's two things that Morehouse does really well, it's the kind of new student orientation at the beginning, right as you enter, and then graduation, because there's this long line of alums um, who kind of gather on campus, and you walk down this line, and they're clapping for you, uh, and you feel like it's, it's one of the most incredible feelings I've ever had, you know, kind of walking with my fellow graduates as this kind of phalanx of uh, graduates are, are clapping for us so it, it, i i can't imagine how disheartening it would be to kind of be walking this line and somebody to tap your shoulder and say you know not this time <laughs> maybe yeah. over the summer. <laughs> it was uh
0: it was it was quite a sight to see because i don't yeah. think i i fully understood what was happening i'd heard stories about that happening but to see it was yeah. like damn. Daryl Morehouse. I feel, I feel, yeah <laughs> dear old more house absolutely what uh what was your freshman dorm
1: uh I stayed at Robert
0: Hall so okay the the yeah. quintessential uh well Graves Hall is our yeah. is our landmark dorm but Robert Hall is yeah. where Dr King stayed yeah uh, famously yeah. so I yeah. stayed in White Hall which okay. is okay. now an ROTC dorm but yeah. when I was there it was just a regular dorm on the on the quad so to speak
1: yeah Robert Hall Okay. yeah that was important for me because a maze is buried right in front of of uh graves right or like there's some kind of um, yes yep.
0: his, yeah his his tombstone is there and i believe his wife is also buried there i believe
1: yeah but, yeah so. so that was super important because i spent a lot of time i i loved uh thinking about his life and what he had done and i read his book when i arrived and so um for me that was really meaningful to be so close to to him i suppose and um, he inspired me to go to Bates College, which is where he graduated from. I went to right. Bates my sophomore year on a Mays Fellowship. And so um, I think when I started it at Morehouse, I was kind of keen to follow his footsteps in a way. Um, and so going to Bates was my way of, of doing that. And that was also really important for me. I spent a year there um, before going to the University of Cape Town and coming back to Morehouse. And so I think that part of my journey was inspired by being so proximate to to Mays on campus and thinking about the impact of his life. and. He mentored MLK for folks I don't know. And so he was a tremendous kind of cultural and educational force in Atlanta and across the nation um, and and just a wonderful scholar as well. So,
0: yes, Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays is a a, a beacon from Morehouse. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So interesting. So you spent two years abroad while you were at Morehouse. So you spent two years physically on campus and two year one year at Bates College and one year. Abroad,
1: I spent. I spent uh, so what I did was I spent my sophomore year at Bates and then the summer after I went to UCT in South Africa. And so okay. I was away technically for about a year and a half, but got you. I was on campus for three years because then I, I returned to Morehouse just right before my junior year. So got you. OK,
0: so it's interesting that you you read um, Dr. May's book before you
1: got to Morehouse. I read it. So there was this uh, program that I did. I'm not sure if it was um, around when you were there, but it was the Coca-Cola pre-freshman, I think that's what it was called, program. And basically, uh, Morehouse invited maybe like 20 um, kids from around the country, not all of whom were going to Morehouse, but these were like high achieving black men. And so they, they gathered us up and it was a week long of indoctrination, basically. And so there were a few upperclassmen who were with us, and then they brought in a bunch of speakers to talk about, you know, various like sort of powerful Morehouse grads and the Morehouse experience. Um, the guy, the man who was running this was a man called uh, Dr. Walter Fluker, who ran the leadership, um, the leadership program at Morehouse. And so it was this whole thing. And one of the things they they talked to us about was uh, was maze. And so when I left this, I had been planning on going somewhere else before I, I, I participated in this program. But after this like, week-long indoctrination program, I went home and told my parents I have to go to Morehouse. And so I came to Morehouse with a set of ideas about what I could achieve at Morehouse, and perhaps more importantly, like the, the great folks who had graduated from Morehouse and gone on to do important things. And so uh, that's I, I kind of came in thinking about, in an active way, about the kind of student I wanted to be, and it was all because of that program I, I participated in.
0: That's fascinating. I was actually going to ask you what got you to Morehouse. So you said Coca-Cola. I was there before those pre-freshman programs had any sponsorship. So, uh, I was in, I did a pre-freshman summer program, but it was like a summer, uh, it was called Center of Excellence in Science, Math, and Engineering. It was put on by NASA. Um, and it was partnered with a Dansby Scholars Program, which was, which was for incoming physics majors. Um, but it was a month. I think we were there for maybe a month and a half, actually. And we took wow. classes and all that stuff. In it. But we were already <clears throat> planning on coming to Morehouse at that point. So, yeah, maybe it's slightly different. I didn't do anything pre deciding I was going to go to Morehouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. OK, so you get to Morehouse. When when do you when does your writer journey start? Were you already a writer before you got to Morehouse and in? in You know, tell me that. Tell me that story. Yeah.
1: You know, it's so interesting because I've always been an avid reader. My parents are from Nigeria. I was born and raised in this country. Um, And my dad was in so many ways the kind of quintessential Nigerian dad. He worked like three or four jobs a day. He was a working class. He is a working class man, but he's recently retired. And um, he would just drop me and my siblings off the library, you know, especially on weekends in the morning and then come pick us up at night. And so they were like our our de facto babysitters in some ways, and they would you know have books out for us and so I, I grew up reading a lot, but I read mostly science fiction and fantasy, I was obsessed and I, I think I began to think of myself as an artist at that point in time. but uh, my parents had other ideas and I, if I think about like the most one of the most important moments in my life it happened when I graduated from high school. Um, and I'd done pretty well in high school. I graduated, you know, I had a pretty good GPA. I was also mm-hmm. a singer in high school. I was okay. in choir and stuff. So they asked me to sing the school song of graduation. Um, and I got this special award for, you know, something, for leadership or something. And so I had, I, I thought I was doing pretty well. And I walk off the stage and my dad is, is crying. I'd never seen, I've seen him cry once before when my sister was born. Um, and so I thought I was going to have like a kind of TV sitcom moment. He's going to give me a big hug and say, I'm proud of you. And I walk up to him, and he said, "I'm so disappointed in you. You should have graduated first in your class." And wow. he turned on his heel and walked away. Um, we yeah. didn't talk like for maybe a week or two weeks after that because I was so mad at him. I was like, "You know, I can't do this anymore. He's ridiculous." But there was a kernel inside of me, like a, a pocket of thought that said, "He's probably right. You know, I hadn't really pushed myself at uh, in high school, and I and I knew that I had potential, and I wasn't actually doing anything to." to ensure that I was achieving my potential. So when I got to Morehouse, the first thing I did, I remember walking into Robert Hall. I lived on the first floor. I walked to the end of the hallway into my room. I sat down at my desk and I wrote down a list of 10 things I wanted to achieve by the time I finished at Morehouse. And I put that list on my mirror and I wrote down another list of 10 things that I have to give up in order to achieve that first 10. And the top of that second list was stop reading novels because I was convinced that part of the reason I had a mm-hmm. done well in high school was because I was reading so much frivolous fiction. <laughs> um, and so for the first kind of year or maybe two years of my Morehouse journey, I didn't read much fiction. Now the, the, the interesting thing is that I was still kind of taking English classes. And I know looking back now, I recognize that I was still trying to engage with fiction in some way, but maybe doing so in an academic context. Mm-hmm. And, um, But I wasn't writing at all. I was just being a really sort of studious person and working as hard as I could, going to the Woodruff Library, Club Woody, spending all my time. Woody. Club Woody. The great Club Woody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the thing that happened is that the moment I won the Rhodes, the first thought I had was, okay... This is for my dad. Now, what do I want to do with my life? Because the one thing that like Nigerian parents and I would argue maybe all immigrant parents live for is to kind of brag on their kids, you know, to say, well, because whenever I went home, my dad would say, oh, so-and-so's kid is at Yale. So-and-so's kid just gone to Harvard med school and he needed some fodder for these conversations. <laughs> so he had the fodder he needed. So the question became, what did I want to do with my life? And actually, when I went to Oxford, uh, one of the first things that I did was that I acted in a play. Uh, Six Degrees of Separation, which uh, Will Smith famously starred in in the right. early 90s. And John Guar is the, the playwright who, who wrote that play. So I, I acted in that play. And I started to like really engage with creativity in a way I hadn't before. And I, I, so I really started writing when I got to Oxford. And I kind of decided that I would spend part of my life doing that.
0: That is fascinating because so you you showed up ambitious. The fact that you could sit down and write down a list of 10 things that you want to accomplish and 10 things that you have to give up to do it. Like my brain was totally not there at all when I got yes. to the Morehouse. Now, so it's funny that it's funny you also mentioned like being the child of immigrants. So my mother is from France, okay, right? my yeah. and and yeah. she moved to America when she was thirteen or fourteen. Um, didn't speak English, you know that that standard story. But interestingly, yeah. I don't know that I don't know that the same level of like need for success or need to be able to to brag kind of thing exists. Or yeah. if it did, now maybe it's because my family got here they were you know it was a lot of struggle on my mom's side you know it's, yeah. it's so I don't I don't know if there was anybody to brag to like honestly I don't know if there was sure you know but
1: yeah oh, I do think, a part yeah. of that right I think
0: yeah I Probably, mean it's yeah, yeah that, that, that the immigrant experience is definitely a very interesting one yeah. because sometimes I forget that I am the child of an yeah. immigrant you know because I don't have the same stories as a lot of my friends you know my wife is from Ghana. So Uh, there's a whole whole different set of um, the conversations I hear and all this. It's very interesting. Like, it's very eye-opening culturally because, you know, there's, like, I I also, you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, we're all black people. I love that, I think. But I do think there's a a very significant nuanced discussion about cultural differences and identities and how, like, being black from America is very different from being black from Nigeria or Ghana or anything or South, you know, South Africa. Where you are from plays such a significant like role in how you come up that yeah. those differences are important to acknowledge Like, like yeah. you know, we are all black, but there are, there's bigger discussions that need to be had there. A thousand percent.
1: That, yeah. 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 I, that's most definitely the case. And, um, and that's that, that exact kind of sort of, I, I, that discussion was playing in my head constantly when I was at Morehouse, like in terms of part of the reason I went to Morehouse was because I was trying to figure out who I was to be perfectly frank. Like I grew up in Utah the first 13 years of my life uh, were spent in Utah. And I was, if not the first, one of the first black kids to go to my school in, in Bountiful. Yeah, you were, it's not like, Salt
0: Lake City either, is
1: it? Yeah, I went work. to. I, I was born in Ogden, which is the second biggest city. It's probably most widely known for being the birthplace of the Osmonds. So the Osmonds oh, were wow. like local heroes. Uh, <laughs> but we moved around a bunch when I was young. So I actually went to school. I started going to school in a place called Bountiful, which is a much smaller city um, in, in North Utah. And uh, there weren't any black people around, you know, really. So my dad had, you know, to his credit, he had this program in place for my siblings and I and part of this was like watching PBS. So I remember one of the shows that I watched on PBS was about Booker T. Washington. It was on a, a series called I think it was called Wonderworld that used to air on PBS. Um, and there was this show about Booker T. Washington. It was uh, directed by Stan Lathan, who's Sana'a's father. Right. And um, it starred book, uh, it starred LeVar Burton among other people. LeVar Burton was the kind of itinerant preacher in this film who uh, is, uh, he can read and he shows up in Booker T. Washington's uh, home um, city and encourages him to be like academically ambitious. But my dad recorded this program and he made us watch it all the time. And it's basically about how Booker T. Washington Washington is is born in slavery. Um, and he, and he kind of is so desperate to read that when he gets a job in a white woman's house, he's like going through her stuff, trying to figure out how to read. He drops a vase. I remember this thing beat by beat. She kind of comes out and she says, okay, she's mad initially. And then she says, okay, I'll I'll teach you how to read. Um, but looking back, I recognize what my dad was trying to, to do was to tell us that, you know, even in these really sort of bad circumstances, you know, not having a bunch of money, not being around anyone like us, there's still a path forward. Um, and so we watched this all the time. There was another, there was a movie that aired about Morehouse as well, I believe, um, that was on PBS at one point, And it starred uh, Nemo Warfield, who was the first um, Black road Scholar from any HBCU and right. Morehouse as well. We heard well. his
0: name a lot when I got to
1: Morehouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so Nima is like kind of a superstar in this thing. And I remember, so the first school I wanted to go to was uh, Tuskegee, actually, because of the, the Washington connection. And I was like, oh, I need to go to that school. But then I saw this thing about Morehouse and I thought, oh, I need to go there because there were just, I was so impressed with the the Morehouse students I saw in this thing. And so, you know, it, when I arrived at Morehouse, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to take a class with Dr. Melvin Raming, who was an English professor who was Nemo Werfel's mentor. And I kind of sought him out. I said, you know, I need to take your class. Um, and and he was really wonderful to me. But all of that was connected to this kind of strict program that my dad had in place for my siblings. Uh, and me, in order to ensure that we saw possibility even in the midst of you know difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's fa- when I was that's fascinating when I when I read like your background about like being from Utah mm-hmm. and, and move. I've never been to Utah. Yeah. Never <laughs> been, I've never had a desire to go to Utah, <laughs> so I always had this idea of like wondering what it's like to grow up in those places, but what yeah. it's like to be growing up black in those kind of places. But it's interesting that your your father had so much like. There's a lot of forethought. Like you all, have, yeah. you, there's a lot of forethought happening. There's a lot of of preparing for the future. Even you, you know, when you talk about getting to Morehouse and setting these goals in place and seeking out people. And I'm I'm truly I, I'm blown by this because I really did none of that. Like I just <laughs> I showed up. I don't know that. I think in my family it was more important that I got to college. I don't think yeah. that the graduating from college was was top of mind for people. It was like you know, he's going, he, he's going to college. That's, that's, that's where the story was. Yeah. But you know, that, I guess that forethought helps for the rest of your life too, right? Like it's, it becomes just ingrained in how you approach things and how you approach life. Yeah. Um, Which leads me to kind of wondering about, so the, the book that you wrote, yeah. which I love. So I have, I'm, I've I'm putting it up in the camera. Nobody can hey. see this, but <laughs> a particular kind of black man. So number one, yeah. let me tell you this. I love the title of this. Oh, I appreciate that.
1: Appreciate that.
0: In interesting ways, it kind of reminds me of like like and I'm talking about the title. Yeah. Like definitive titles, like the invisible man, right? Like just this idea of of it's so vivid in its in in its brevity. Like I already go in thinking, like, okay, is this about kind of respectability? Is it about setting up who you are in advance that people have an idea of what you're gonna get when they get like what was what made you start writing this book? And I've read a bunch about like your path to writing this book. You know, this yeah. it's not autobiographical though. It it has autobiographical tenets to it. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. You know. But tell me a little bit about like I'm. I'm. I started reading it. Full disclosure, I have not finished.
1: It's all good, man. <laughs> but you
0: know. Um. But <clears throat> I have started reading the book, and I'm, I'm. I'm interested to see where it goes. So please tell me what, or tell us those listening. What got you writing this book and, you know, when you started to deviate from the autobiographical parts?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I've had this desire to write, as we discussed, for quite a while. Kind of started in college and then I suppressed it and then I got to grad school and I really started writing. And what happened was that after grad school, I got this job at um, Google and I was based in London And so I was responsible for I had kind of responsibility for um, public relations and public affairs in six countries in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. I spent most of my time in Israel and Turkey. So I spent a bunch of time in Istanbul and Ankara and Turkey and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv in Israel. And so I'm doing this job, which my parents are super happy with. You know, they they must be very proud of that. Exactly. They can say it
0: sounds very important. And yeah like it traveling was, and all this other stuff like it was
1: it was it was it was pretty dope, but it was also super stressful. I was always you know up i was you know it sounds i suppose looking back in some ways, maybe it sounds a bit glamorous. I spent a lot of time at Heathrow flying all over the place um mm-hmm. but I kind of began to recognize as I was there that I wanted to do something else, and I remember one time I was flying to Turkey actually this is a trip I took like twice a month, and I was going to to Istanbul. And so I had pulled out a a pad and I was like writing furiously. I had this idea for a short story. I spent the entire time writing on this pad. And when we landed, I hadn't noticed this gentleman sitting next to me. And as I was getting up, he looked at me and said, whatever you were writing on that pad for the entirety of the flight, you need to spend your life doing that. And that really struck me because I thought like, wow, like somebody outside of me sees this desire I have to write. And to be perfectly honest, when I started at Google... I was trying to, you know, basically have my cake and eat it too. I asked if they would be willing to give me a monthly book stipend so I could think about like sort of writing fiction and to their credit, they did. And so many of the books behind me, actually, I got when I was at Google because I was trying to build up this library. And but after I had this conversation with this gentleman, I thought, well, what would happen if I actually spent some time, you know, writing if I if I gave myself a shot, basically. And so I decided maybe a month after that, I got this bonus from Google, I decided to come back to the U.S. um, with that money and set up shop in D.C. I wanted to come to D.C. because I was really interested in being a place where I could access free art. One of the great things about living in London is that there's all these free museums and there's, you know, free um, plays and all kinds of things. And I thought like, you know, New York, I think for a lot of people is a natural destination because it's in many ways the art capital of the U.S. But D.C. has free museums, a really robust literary scene. So I thought I'd come here, be able to save some money, spend some time at museums and like – So I arrive here and I say, I'm going to start writing a book. And then the financial crisis happens shortly after I arrive. And so to be perfectly frank, I was unemployed for about a a year and a half. And this was by far the toughest period of my life because, you know, I remember going on Facebook and my friends would be, you know, you know, people are always kind of bragging on Facebook and they're like, oh, I just made partner at this thing. I'm just doing and and here I am growing this beard, being a super bohemian, not a single (laughs) accomplishment to my name. I'm sending my work everywhere. It's getting rejected everywhere. And it was so, very viscerally painful. Um but I just had in mind like if I just keep at it, something will happen. If I keep at it, if I keep at it. And so I just kept writing every day. and actually set up, you know, this is for my dad. I set up this personal schedule for myself. I said, if I'm unemployed, I'm gonna at least be productive. And so I'd spend four hours a day writing. I'd spend four hours a day at a museum a- in town. And then when I came back, I'd spend a couple hours watching some a film and so I, I really love cinema. I love films by like Tarkovsky and Ozu and and Bergman and some of the great cin- the, the 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 great directors out there and so I watched all these movies. Um and so what I recognize looking back now is that I was kind of cultivating this life of an artist in a way that I probably would not have been able to if I had the high power job that I was sort of pining for at right. that point. Um, wouldn't have so like,
0: had the time either. Just exactly, the, uh, and I wouldn't really and so think and process.
1: That's exactly it. And I remember reading something from. There are a bunch of people who have, in their own ways, gone on a similar journey. I was. I used to watch Mad Men back in the day, and Matthew Weiner, I think his surname is, talks about this period of unemployment and how difficult it was for him. And, um, and so I am, in many ways, and shout out to my girlfriend who basically kind of, you know, sponsored my my wayward <laughs> lifestyle for a moment there. Uh, but I finally got a, a fellowship. Then girlfriend, now wife—I should say—shout out to Stephanie. Um, I got oh, a um, uh, a fellowship at a place called the Institute for Policy Studies in DC, and so this was a year-long fellowship. And um, half and uh, when I, I was on this fellowship, I was really sad about the fact that I, I couldn't—I applied to all these writing residencies, hadn't gotten a single one, and it didn't occur to me that like I could use my fellowship at IPS as a writing residency. And so what happened was that six months in, they send me out to California to do some fundraising. Um, and so I'm going I'm going into these people's houses. I'm talking about what I'm doing at this at this think tank. And the last stop on this tour, um, I actually get a chance to meet Gore Vidal, who was one of my literary heroes. Um, wow. And he was by this point in a wheelchair. And so I gave my very brief pitch. And after I spoke, he came up to me and said, you know, he said, I sense that you're a writer. Uh, and and maybe you should give that a shot. And so the funny thing is that I was writing a lot of poetry at this point in my life, and the moment mm-hmm. he said that to me, I came back and I said, okay, I'm going to start writing this book. So I started writing this book um, when I was at the Institute for Policy Studies, um, and I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know if I was writing a memoir or a work of fiction. I just thought, like, I'm just going to write every day. And what happened was that I, th- I started from a kind of memoir place, but I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos in which writers talk about their journeys, and they all talk about, like, characters deciding to do what they want to do. And, that, right. and I thought it was a bunch of mumbo jumbo at the time, but that happened to me. Like I was writing about a protagonist who I thought was me, and he started doing things that I had never done. That's when I kind of figured out that I was actually working on a novel. Um, and so I kind of continued to write. I finished the first draft by the end of my fellowship, and I published my first short story about a year later in a place called Transition Magazine, which is based out of Harvard. Um and they submitted a story of mine to the Kane Prize for African Writing, which is the top literary prize in Africa. And I won that prize a few months later. And so that's when I think from the outside looking in, my literary career started. But it, it all started back really at Oxford when I kind of decided to like this is something I have to do.
0: Yeah. So that's that's interesting. I'm going to ask you a question because I did read something about that. Like that Cain Prize, it's uh, it's typically for like African writers in Africa. Right. But you won that. Yeah. You won that. prize. Was there ever any. Yeah. Like, was like, did you submit for that, or were you submitted for that? Like, how does that work? Because yeah,
1: super controversial. That's that's where I was
0: going with it. It seems like it seems like it could be a controversial thing, right? Because I imagine individuals who are like, you know, this is you are Nigerian, no doubt. Yeah. But they're like, but you're the American. You're the Americanized one, right? Like, he's really American. He's not, you know, that kind of thing. So how, like, how did was there something to navigate? Through that at all? It yeah. was just, listen, I won this award. That's great. Let me continue on with what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, that was super. You know, it's, it's interesting. I knew about the Kane Prize because I, I love reading African fiction, and a number of people who have won the Kane Prize have gone on to these wonderful, stellar careers in, in fiction. Um, so I published my first story, um, and one of my mentors is a man named Helen Habila, who's a great um, African writer. He's based here in the States. Um, and I sent him the story. And he read it and he said, you should submit this for the Kane Prize. And so I didn't know I was eligible for it. Again, I was born and raised in this country. Right. At that point in my life, I'd been to Nigeria once in my life for a few months when I was an infant. And so I didn't have a kind of, you know, sort of tangible other than, you know, a bunch of my families there. I right. talked to family there all the time, but I, I hadn't lived there. And I didn't know I was eligible for it. And he said to me, um, you know, it's, it's for people who were born and raised on the continent or people who have at least one parent who was from the continent. So the prize itself has this idea about what diaspora is and means, but nobody had ever, I think, sort of either applied or or certainly won uh, by, you know, under this diaspora clause, I suppose we'll call it. And so, uh, you know, I just threw my hat in the ring. Like, so what actually happens is that the publisher has to submit uh, on behalf of the writer. So Transition Magazine, which has its own really great story, which started in Africa, in Uganda by a wonderful uh, writer. I think his name is Rajat Nyoji. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But then later on in its life, it was taken over by Wole Soyinka, the great Nigerian playwright, who was the first African to win a Nobel prize. Uh, so uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. studied under Wole Soyinka at Cambridge um, and they became really close friends. And mm-hmm. so when this magazine went through this kind of tough period Henry Louis Gates Jr. brought it to Harvard. And so now it's at Harvard. And so it, the, the magazine itself has this interesting life and trajectory. And so I suppose it made sense that they published the story. I went out to transition and I said, would you be willing to submit this on my behalf? They said, yes. So fast forward a few months, I'm shortlisted for the prize. And the conversation begins like how I was the only person on the shortlist who had not been born in Africa, who had ever been shortlisted, who had been born in Africa. And then I won. Um, and every sort of article that that came out afterwards was about like, you know, the fact yes. that I hadn't. And the thing right. is that the King Prize is a big deal in Europe and, and Africa. And so the moment I won, um, what happens is that they announced the prize at, at Oxford. And so I was back, you know, where I'd gone to school. And there were like all these cameras there, people from the BBC and Reuters and all other these other organizations. And they announced the winner. The cameras collapse on me. I give a very kind of impromptu sort of speech to the, the uh, gathered press. Then the entire following day... Uh, it's kind of media stuff. And so I was live on television on the BBC, I was doing all these interviews. And all the questions were like, do you how can you get this prize? And you're not you're not actually African. And so you know, many ways, it's a kind of conversation I've been having with, you know, with people, when I get to Morehouse, for example, they're like, are you actually African American? You know, like, so that conversation, and then before when I'm younger, you know, and I'm, we moved to Texas they're like are you actually black you know and so I suppose in in many ways it's a a recurring theme in my life and I I suppose because of my background I was prepared to have the conversation about you know the fact that I am in in many important ways African but I'm also American I that my identity encompasses both perspectives and that's in many ways what the book is about as well.
0: I was just gonna say like that's a it's an it's a fascinating case study in identity and identity politics and all that like you are who you are. You're eligible for an award. You win the award, rightfully so. And then questions about your identity and your right to access to something comes up, even though eligible. You you are literally who the award is geared towards. Yeah. But because of the idea of taking up space in certain ways. Yeah. So it's funny because I think so many of the 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 great books that I've read about like identity have come from like African writers like but um, who are who live in America. Or have yeah. spent a lot of time in America, or have like this interesting connection with Americanness but Africanness, like that push and pull back and forth. Yeah, you know, like look, black identity is a is a thing, right? Like especially yeah. Yeah. in in look, I am I am biracial, I'm black, and that becomes a thing. Like most people don't even know that I'm mixed until I tell them, and then it's yeah. like then these then the discussions start. Yeah, but the the cultural identity issues are so poignant. You know, I have these conversations with my wife all the time. So she was born and raised in Ghana. Okay. But she moved to America when she was 11. And she went to Howard, uh, lived here, moved to New Jersey when she she got to America. So she went to school here. You know, she went to middle school and high school here. And then she went to Howard. And it's like that push and pull between the African identity and the American identity. And then, you know, my guess is. Certain African people look at you as an eyes, but it's like, but I'm very yeah. much, you know, my African identity is who I am. Yeah. Those are, they're, they're just, they're amazing discussions that I, I, because I'm right in the middle of it. Like I have, you know, I have three little Ghanaian American boys now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, but they're all very American, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, so it's, these are <laughs> conversations, because she calls them, you know, these Ghanaian boys. And I'm like, yeah, they're, they're kind of Americans. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a joke. We have the the jokey conversation, but I do yeah. love the the cultural tie to a place that I think as a black American, I romanticize somewhat. You know, yeah. we went to um we went to Ghana for the year of the return. Oh, wow. And, you know, she that was her first time going back home in, I think, almost 10 years. Wow. And, you know, for me, it was my first time stepping foot on the continent. So, you know, immediately I'm just like in awe. Like everything is like, oh, wow, my my feet have touched the motherland, sure. but it was, you know, but she's there going home, visiting family. We're going to visit yeah. family. You know, we're going to old places, but every time we would go somewhere I get caught up in the mysticism of like the history of what it could be, you know, Yeah. we're at some beach party, listening to soldier boy blaring on a beach. <laughs> and all I can do is stare off into the Atlantic ocean. Like, man, at some point in time, my family left and never came back. You know, it's like, yeah. I just, yeah. So, you know, it's like that, that the cultural stuff is so interesting to me. Yeah. And, you know, that's why. So even once I realized what your backstory was and about the book, I'm like, yo, this is going to be a fascinating book just because I think if you're baking that those identity conversations, um, those identity conversations and issues into it, like, I mean, I can't help but be but gravitate towards something like that because I feel like I'm going to learn from it. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I, I love the fact that we're having both us here. And I think generally in the culture, we're having really important conversations about what black identity is and what it means. And I think it's evolving in really important ways beyond the kind of binary framework that, that predominated for such a long time, you know, either you're black or you're not black and, and whatever that may mean. And I think there's so much nuance that's being wrapped into that conversation now that, is, I think, wonderful and essential. And, um, you know, again, there are so many ways to be Black, but not in a way, I mean, sometimes people have that conversation as a way of kind of rejecting Black identity or something along those lines. I reject that entirely because I am incredibly happy and proud to be Black. But I do think that it's important to have like nuanced conversations within our community about what that means and how one can express oneself um, and, and that sort of thing, right? So um, and I think that we are beginning to have that. And, and I wanted to contribute to that conversation with the book in my own way to kind of offer up another vision of Black identity. And so that's why the title became meaningful for me. All
0: right. Two so two questions about this book. How does your father feel about it? Since we yeah. do a lot, we're doing a lot of stuff for for to make yeah. Dad proud and stuff yeah. like that. Obviously. Yeah. And what was the general reception of it? Like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, how did that go?
1: Yeah. So I think the first question. My I'm not sure that he's read it to be perfectly honest. You know, because my dad's not really. Uh, He's not a, a literature person. You know, he mm-hmm. his his preferred kind of book is is the Bible by a mile. So he's constantly reading the Bible. Um and I you know, we I think he's proud of the idea that I've written a book, you know. He's proud that the book exists with my name on it. But we mm-hmm. haven't had any conversations. You know, I did publish a couple stories uh before the book came out. And he read the stories and those stories are included in the book. And I remember one time he read one and he said, that's not me. And so he had this idea yeah. that I was maybe writing. about He's like, that didn't happen. And I was like, I, part of it did happen. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I'm not writing about you per se. I'm writing, I'm writing a story that people can hopefully, you know, sort of read and be moved by in some way. And so, right. um, and he's like, okay. And he kind of moved on with it. So uh, I, again, I, I think he's theoretically happy that I've written a book. And <laughs> as long as I'm not, you know, sort of castigating in some way I, or, character that's based on him I'm sure he's fine I think in terms of general reception it's it's been pretty good the the interesting thing though about like publishing a book like mine is that um I think even in literature for example there's a kind of because publishing is so white you know let's be perfectly frank you know there's uh, I'm not sure I was surprised that a, a big five publisher took the book on because I assumed because I wasn't writing the the kind of black stories they've come to expect, I was assuming that they wouldn't pick it up. And there's a wonderful Mm -hmm. editor at Simon & Schuster, his name is Iris Silverberg, who took the book on. And so he was my saving grace. But even after he took the book on, I think that the publisher in some ways was trying to figure out how to market the book. You know, it's like an immigrant tale. It's not an immigrant tale. It's about a protagonist like me who was born and raised in this country but has Nigerian parents. And I think they were still getting their arms around it. It's so interesting because... I think now we're at a place where if you write in a Toni Morrison vein, say, you know that it's more comprehensible because Toni Morrison went through this really difficult journey of getting her voice out there and getting her perspective recognized. But if you're, you know, doing something that is an experience that many, many black people have had, if you're writing about that experience, um, I think that publishing is still getting their arms around it because inevitably – Um, The book is, you know, there's a bunch of this is changing, but it's still the case. You know, a bunch of white folks are in a room and they're saying, how do we sell this book? And 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 they don't have the deep kind of experience um, that's reflected in that book. And they're not accustomed to selling this kind of narrative as well. Um, And so I, I, I people who have read it, I think, have responded really well to it, especially people who've had a similar experience. But I've also had to do a lot of proselytizing about what the book is about, which is great. I'm happy to do it. Right. Um, but I, I think in some ways that I'm, I'm setting, uh, I'm on this kind of journey to kind of educate folks on the publishing side and perhaps an audience as well about it.
0: I mean, yeah, let's be real. Like, white people don't get blackness. They don't yeah. understand what that means. So for them, there's a lot of checking off boxes and ticking off boxes. Okay, so is it, uh, so you're an immigrant who, and you're like, yeah. well, actually, that's not the case. And it, yeah. The Oscars yeah. are going through this or going through this, right? Because Absolutely. I believe yeah. there was the the story about the, the Asian American family and they yeah. wanted to make that a foreign film or something like that. Yeah. Like, but they're yeah. American, right? Like That's exactly it. And yeah. the struggle for outside, not even outside communities, just white people to understand the nuance <laughs> of yeah. what it means. To be an American, a country that literally was founded by gathering people from all different walks exactly. of life and, and, and putting us in and having us all be here is... It's dumbfounding. And that, I mean, yeah. that's why all these damn hashtags and all this stuff has to exist, where it's like, you know, you got to explain yourself. But the good part about it is there's almost never been as good a time to write books that provide art that is so indicative of personal experience and personal narrative. Yeah. Right? Like there, there is a market for that because people are looking to be seen and not only yeah. looking to be seen, they want more of it. Yeah. So, you know, the 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 ability to read a book that might have some even if it's just tangential relations to my own life, is appealing to me. And yeah. therefore, I'm going to go check that book out. And I'm going to check out other books that might be like that. You know, when I go to places like Barnes & Noble or, um, I don't know, anywhere you buy books, and I see all these books about the Black experience taking up this – and they're, they're so varied and interesting, and they're front and center now. They're not just put on – there's not just in the African-American intersection section they yeah. know, right? Yeah. They, they actually – they actually take up space in the in the uh, the corridor that when you walk in yeah. the stores. I mean, yeah, there's a reason for that. So I think it's great that you know you have a book that tells one part of a black experience that is about identity. Because look, for all of us, we love to be black, but our black identities are so unique, and I think we're all leaning into that even more. Yeah, that there's a space for these books. So I think it's great that you that you wrote a book about that, wrote a story like that, like this, not, not yeah. like that, like this. Yeah, yeah, and that it's part of the greater narrative of what it's like to be black in America, because it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to start with the slave narrative. Yeah. You know well, what I mean? Well,
1: that's exactly like, it. That's my point, you know, and I think that the the a lot of the black stories that are kind of recognized either by publishing houses or other entities are, you know, the slave narratives, which are incredibly important, right? Like they're super right. important. There's or also a million the of them at
0: this point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. a lot of exactly. them. There's a lot
1: of them. Or the immigrant story. And so I think a number of people who who are in charge, who are gatekeepers, who think about like black stories and black literature, they think about that in a very functional way, right? So they might say, okay, something horrible happened to this black person, like he was something, you know, a police officer did something horrific to this. So let's publish fiction about this happening, right? um and and there's a kind of you know a small-mindedness which might be a bit of a harsh term but i think it's just because of a lack of a lack of experience that happens that they might say this other story my argument would be that like every black story is important because it's about um how people come to be and recognize their their humanity in spaces that constantly reject their humanity right, right. and that that's that in itself is a more universal story than the stories that we've been told are universal because most people in the world aren't white Americans, right? So we're all kind of trying to figure out how to capture our humanity and project our humanity out into the world. And I think in every narrative that's that's interested in talking about that process becomes incredibly important for that reason.
0: Yeah, and also all trying to figure out why in the hell we care so much about white people's opinion. But, yeah. you know,
1: and it's funny. So it's, you know, yeah.
0: this, is a, this is an interesting conversation because it's something that I'm going through as, you know, I'm working on a book proposal and yeah. – I, so I don't have an agent right now. Like, I don't have a book agent right now. And part of that is because I am not writing Black Pain. Mm. Like, my the book that I plan on writing is, it's, not, a, is not a painful one. And the, yeah. because of that, several agents I've talked to have told me very plainly, we can't, what's, there's no, there's nothing to sell here. Yeah. And I'm like, so you're telling me there's no market for Black joy? Yeah. Black pain yeah. there's plenty of it. If I if yeah. I decided I wanted to write, you know, I I wrote an article several years ago that won me awards. It was one of the most painful things I've ever written because of what it did to my family. It's a personally.
1: Yeah.
0: uh was about, you know, my mother being a white Trump supporter, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote an article about the the rift that that caused. Now we're fine now, so I'm not trying to, you know, bring up old shit. But yeah. we're fine now, but <laughs> sure. you know, that I remember talking to potential agents like that, leaning into that. I'm like, why? I don't want to. Yeah. By the time I'm done with this, I'm going to be so gutted. And I'm yeah. actually a much happier person than this book would be. Like, I would rather write a book that talks about the joy that I feel from being a black man in America. Like there's a there's a story. There's a narrative to tell that's actually enjoyable. That's one yeah. that I actually like. It turns out I like being black and it's been pretty cool. It's been a yeah. it's been quite a ride. Like I've done a lot of things. But the lean into black pain stuff has been so prevalent that, you know, it's kind of part of it has taken me a little while to get back to wanting to even try to focus on this proposal. Cause I feel like there's, it's almost a dead, it's like a dead man walking, but yeah. I'm like, there has to be space for this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, because there are a lot of happy black people like, and it's okay. Yeah. So there should be stories about those things, but it's, it's, it's interesting <laughs> just, just talking about that stuff because you know, the market for black joy, like what does that look like? Is there a marketplace for black joy? You know there absolutely like, is.
1: And I went through the same thing when I was trying to sell my book. Agents would say to me, you know, the one thing that they all said to me was they said two things, actually. They said either you need to write an immigrant story. So this, you know, either focus on the father character, the, the novel needs to be about him and coming to mm-hmm. America, because that's a, a story they recognize. Right. Um or you need to write a story about like, you know, somebody who starts from poverty and then is triumphant. Right. So they love that narrative of you know somebody who's like stuck in poverty. Right. And then and my book to, it ends on a somewhat ambivalent note. Right. So they, they just want that because that narrative is actually about how everything in America is actually OK. Like if you yeah, you might start start off in difficult circumstances, but if you work hard enough, you know, you things in America, fine. you know, yeah. you're. White fairy grandmother will come and, you know, sort of you'll be fine and you'll win awards and everything else. And so I think if you're not writing in those specific lanes, it's hard for people to the 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 bottom line is that I think a lot of white folks have a hard time understanding black humanity, like the full range of it, to be perfectly honest. And that is an uh, so I, I think as more narratives come out and as more of us are more vocal on social media and, and other platforms, I think that hopefully begins to change And more black art emerges that challenges these predominant narratives that begins to change. But, you know, uh, Sarah Lewis, who's a wonderful art critic and an art historian at Harvard, said something that I think about all the time. She said that uh, black art, she was talking about visual art, but I think this applies mm-hmm. across the arts. She says it's over-awarded and under-theorized. And I think that's so incredibly astute because what she's basically saying is that like even now in this environment, there are a number of folks who want to give black writing and black art awards, but they're doing it because there's a sense that black art hasn't been awarded before. So they're just like, okay, what's the painful narrative that captures black pain? What's the, the narrative that talks about this, you know, this horrific thing that happened to a number of black men and women last year, the art that recognizes that. But there's not a lot of AKA thinking the about green book. Exactly. Yeah. There's not a lot of thinking about, you know, there's not a lot of criticism that extends beyond the kind of superficial conversation about right. how this book might engage with black pain or whatever the case may be. So we we still live in an era in which like the black art and a black culture is in many ways being curated by white folks. And that doesn't mean that there's not incredible black art that's emerging in this moment. There certainly is. But I can't right. help but think how the black art would be different if black folks were curating that black art, you know, like what kind of art we, we'd have access to. And I think we're we're kind of heading in that direction. But we're yeah, still in this so mode too. where it has to pass through a white gatekeeper, right? Before yeah, it becomes... And they're trying to sell
0: books to or, white people, right? So they're like, oh, yeah. well, white people get this stuff and... It has yeah, to I mean, be legible
1: is... to white yeah. folks, right? If it's not accessible and legible to white folks, then sorry, it's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, you we know? have this discussion frequently amongst, you know, friends of mine who are, you know, all, we're all writers and we're all talking, yeah. you know, many who have published books, others who are trying to publish books or getting into that space. And I'm kind of one of those people who's in the middle. Like, I, I don't know that I necessarily want to write a book, but I'm a writer and I, I probably have a book in me and I have yeah. all these thoughts and all that other stuff. And, you know, I've carved out a space that works very well for me you know writing one-off uh you know interesting cultural discussions and stuff like that and then leaving it there and moving on to other things but i do think there's a larger discussion to be had and um having to get out of my own way on that because not hearing the i can't sell this i need the black pain stuff you know it's yeah it it, it lodges itself in your brain and it it creates a little block of well why am i even doing this it's never going to go anywhere when the truth is you know, you kind of got to do some of that stuff anyway, just to, you know, I just got to try, I guess, ultimately. You, look, um, I
1: am living evidence of the fact that you don't have to do that, you know, because and it was hard. <laughs> it was a harder path. It certainly yeah. was. But, um, you know, the thing that I said to myself is that I, if I continue to focus on craft and becoming a better writer, that at some point somebody will recognize what I'm trying to do. And in my case, I have been, you know, I mentioned my editor, Ira Silverberg. He's the one person in New York who said, okay, like there's something here. So I am forever grateful to him for doing that. And when we had conversations, the thing that I loved about it was we were having conversations about like a full panoply of the Black artistic experience, not just, you know, like here's a book that can be tacked to the headlines in some way. So uh, I am grateful to him for recognizing me as a a writer and and an artist, a full human being, and not just as somebody who delivers kind of, medicine you know I, I think there's a sense right. that a lot of if you if you look at the literature pages and whether it's fiction or nonfiction, a lot of what happens is that i think um black art and art by people of color in general is meant to be like homework right and that's why you'll see like a lot of people engaging with black art after something horrific happens yeah that's a good that to about yeah like they're not connected personally to the narratives in in a kind of way, which is deeply unfortunate. So they're like, okay, gosh, I have to read this thing in order to understand this because I want to be a good person. But then when the stuff kind of tapers out of the news, they're like, okay, let's go back to this other thing that like engages. And there's some, a part of that that's understandable because, you know, you, you go, you read this on your spare time, you read this stuff in your spare time, you want to kind of be entertained and enlightened. And if you don't feel this kind of connection of blackness or black culture, Um, yeah, you might sort of think about it as like homework and then move on to whatever it is that you want to do when the stuff is out of the headlines, right? So uh, we need to move beyond that kind of engagement with Black art as homework and think about Black art as, you know, kind of foundational narratives that explain the American experience because that's what they are. Yeah, that's um, that's such a
0: great point about Black art as homework because, you know, the way we met is where, we're doing, I'm working on this series for Mahogany Books in Washington, D.C., yeah. a black bookstore in D.C. They have, a, um, from the Writer's Perspective Writer Series. And, well, the owners of the store, Derek and young, DeYoung, you know, they had, because of the George Floyd, because of George Floyd's murder, which we're going through the trial now, they're going yeah. through the trial now. And the kind of racial reckoning, they had like a, a banner year, right? They're a black bookseller, so lots of black people bought books from there. But white people were buying certain yeah. books, too. And all of a sudden, all these books about race— Shoot up the bestseller list, right? They yeah. all become. So you want to, you know, Ijoma so You want to talk about race? Yeah. Ibram Kendi, hell, his book, his books might still be the number one books in the country right now about how to be yeah. anti-racist and all that. But
1: yeah,
0: you know, it's funny because the, the they've talked to reporters and people are like, wow, this has been great. And he's like, you know, it's it's great. I just hope they actually read the books, like not yeah. just buy it because yeah. it's the thing to do right now. Like you just put it on the shelf because, well, I'm gonna buy a book about what it's like to be, you know, how to find empathy in a world where i've never really had to have it yeah so you kind of wonder if all these books that have become bestsellers and all these people who are reading these things and hopefully gaining something from it are then going to be able to employ it is it going to be actionable like is there going to be an actual difference because of all this homework everybody's allegedly doing right now or (laughs) is it just the homework they're doing now until the next assignment because some other travesty happens to to exactly an underrepresented community yeah the stop Asian America, the stop, the stop Asian hate thing going on right now. Like I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden books by for and about Asians, Asian Americans are all of a sudden in vogue, so to speak, because now people care.
1: Yeah. And these are incredibly important narratives that have, you know, people wrote them, but now because there's a sense that, okay, I have to get this homework done. And if you engage with black art as homework, It's not it's not going to enter the canon. It's not going to become really important art because it's the stuff that you do that you have to do. Like not many people like doing homework. Right. Right. (laughs) That's that's the unfortunate thing. So um, and I think that's beginning partly because we have more black folks in position of power, cultural power. That's incredibly important. And black folks in positions of power at publishing houses. So hopefully that changes as well. But there's still this kind of, you know, metric around, okay, what's selling? And it's it's a really vicious circular thing because you'll say, okay, is this selling? Why is it selling? It's selling because there's a sense that this is the black art that you need to engage with. And so it kind of goes around and around. And if you're just writing a piece about black joy, you know, and says, you know, this is a viable thing that people have. We have cookouts and great music and people hanging out and kind of reveling in the black experience You know, you have to go through a gauntlet of people saying, well, that's not sellable, even though it's an experience that many people have. And furthermore, people who aren't black can relate to that or maybe derive something from that as well. Right. So that needs to be that's an important narrative as well. And I think we're getting to a place where people will begin to recognize that. But there's still some pushing to do. So
0: the interesting thing about that, and and this is a good pivot into black joy and what what, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, too, is because I don't think white people and people in positions of power whatever can understand the concept of black joy as a term as a statement but what they do understand is the interesting power that black spaces have like black twitter for instance became like this or when they discovered that everybody in america is paying attention to d nice during club quarantine right it's like what the hell it's like like wait that's where all the black people are like there's millions of people here like what is this black twitter is is setting trends and changing everything black people are responsible for all these challenges like this Black the, TikTok, you know, the yes, whole thing like about the,
1: Jimmy Fallon, was it last week or the week before? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes. There's like the, yeah. There's that.
0: The commodity end of it starts to click yeah. when they see all these cultural movements happening and they're they're happening in places that white people aren't at. But then they discover yeah. them. It's like, what the hell? Like Yeah. Like I... Verses. You know, like the yeah. verses that we all pay attention to. The yeah. the the, the Ozzy brothers and Earth Wind & Fire was like a cultural yeah. moment for so many black people. It was like Absolutely. literally the only place to be on Sunday because this was your grandmama's music. Your mom, this was, this was cleaning up on Sunday music. This was all that other stuff. And you see these things get written up in publications, like from a, from a place of, of like this peaked curiosity, like, wow, what is, what is this thing that's happening? You know? So it's, it's in some ways, I think the idea of black joy as a concept is too hard to understand but the commodity aspect of Black Joy and the way that we turn these Black Joy into very um, financially gainful, even though we rarely re- we turn yeah. Clubhouse into a thing. But are any Black yeah. people going to really make money off that? Probably not. You know what I mean? So yeah, exactly. Exactly. you know, it's the our IP is fascinating to white people. Let's just say, yeah, that. it is. <laughs> um, Especially it can
1: be, you know if it can be monetized in some way and people, yeah, then it becomes super interesting. Then they get it. Then all of a sudden they get it. Let's talk about
0: that black Twitter thing. I love yeah. to get more on that. Do you yeah. have 250 pages about black Twitter? Cause I think we can make that work.
1: Exactly. exactly.
0: Um, so, okay. So let's speak, speaking of black joy, one of the yeah. reasons we even, I even, we even decided to have this conversation is because when we met, you mentioned an article that I had written that I yeah. forgot that I actually wrote about yeah. uh, one of my favorite albums. Yeah. Um, Reese's How I Do. So for anybody who doesn't know who Reese is, she's an artist. She's a singer out of Philadelphia who in 2001 released an album called How I Do. I wrote an ode to this album because, number one, I hadn't seen anybody else do it. And it's the one album that stayed in my rotation in my car when I still had a CD changer longer than any other album. So it lived with me for like seven straight years in the (laughs) sixth slot on my CD changer in my car. Till my oh, till my, my Honda Accord was <laughs> uh unceremoniously destroyed oh, in no. a high-speed police chase through my neighborhood. It literally, my car stopped the police chase through my neighborhood. What? Yeah. I never Whoa. was I wasn't even able to get the car out of the out of the CD. I mean the CD out of the car changer. Like it turned my four door Honda Accord into a two-door car.
1: My goodness.
0: Be that as it may, Whoa. Reese's How I Do is an album that was so good when it came out. And I, I bought it literally having no idea what this album was. I bought it because of the cover because she looked so doggone adorable and she was smiling yeah. so hard. I was like, well, this can't be bad. And then it basically yeah. was an album that I couldn't live without.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned loving this album too, right? Yeah, I love how I do. I can't even begin to express how deeply I love it. I discovered it late. I discovered it, I think, um, 2003. So a couple of years after it had dropped. And I think I was actually on... on on campus at Morehouse and um, there was this guy who used to sell bootleg CDs and he's like, yo, you, this is a great one. And I had never heard of this. <laughs> so I had never heard of this CD. I didn't know who Reese was. I, I thought it was rest. You know, I had no idea how, it was, mm-hmm. her name is spelled R.E.S. Um, and so I, I picked it up in one random evening. I put it on and I just thought like, this is, this is incredible stuff. And I, and I was, I, you know, it, 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 the reason why reading your piece was so incredible was because I thought like I was alone in Loving this album and not only loving it, but it being one of my favorite albums of that moment in my life, like at the at the top of the list. And I was kind of flummoxed that nobody else loved it because it's an incredible album, It the, the lyrics, everything else, it's, it, it represents, I thought, like a, 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 an evolution from what had been happening up to that point in music, right? Like it, to me, in my mind, it fits in with what with Khalees was doing in a way, with what a number yes. of people are doing. But Khalees was hitting, a lot of other folks were hitting, but she wasn't. And I can never understand why that was. And I think too, the fact that she um, kind of expressed a different kind of blackness was also incredibly important to me. And I don't say that, again, as somebody who's in opposition to what was happening, because I loved a bunch of the music that was out there at the time. But um, she was kind of representing a new way of being black in a way. Um, it's it, there are certainly hip hop elements of the album, but it's not entirely hip hop. There's also a kind of there's a rock thing that's happening. There's yeah. a kind of it's it's a diverse album. And it, I was but it all say, I think that's beautiful. the problem. It's yeah. too
0: diverse of an album. Like it literally yeah. has elements from reggae, from rock. soul. the the constant is her voice fits every one of those molds perfectly. Yeah. You know, and and I think the other problem is she didn't release another album. Anytime after that, you know, like yeah. she seemed to, to a degree, she seemed like more of the muse for, for, San, for Santa, Gold. Santa gold, the producer, the, the producer and the writer of the album. It was like, they found a perfect vessel in Reese yeah. to deliver this album, which almost, you know, as, as, I listened to it today in preparation for this. And I was like, this almost seems like a bunch of songs pulled from different parts of whatever they were working on. And they put together a cohesive album because yeah. of her voice like yeah. vocally she was able to land like stick the landing on every one of the songs yeah. and it was yeah. like we have an album here yeah and maybe it was just too early because i feel like an album like this coming out later might yeah. might work differently because it's so relatable it's so it's so relatable content as we like to say you know yeah i joke about you familiar with TJR Moses yeah, I, of course. Listen, I, I, I knew you were gonna say yes, but I had to ask I love right? so, Teacher Moses. I feel like Teager Teedra, album I Complex Simplicity
1: comes out. Oh, that's way that's too one early. of the great albums. Let's yes, can we yes. that's one of the great albums. I was about to cuss. Yes. <laughs> the great albums. It's it yes. can it comes out I think just be a just girl. too early. Yeah. yeah
0: it's a great song. Like her that yeah. album. If that album comes out post 2010, it's literally yeah. one of the biggest albums of all time. Well, maybe not of all time. I don't want to oversell it, but
1: it doesn't make like, sense though. Cause she's gorgeous. The song hits, it's a perfect vibe. I don't get why you know
0: they're just too early. Yeah. Some some people just they drop an album before the public is really ready to run with it. Because yeah. and I'll even I'll even say this. When I first heard Tidra's complex simplicity, I'm pretty sure that I I said it wasn't that good. I wrote mm. an apology article for saying this album wasn't that great. Funny enough though, she also sent her people at me once because I wrote an article about how Dra Moses complex simplicity is the blueprint for hood rat R and B. Oh, because and here's the <laughs> thing. I still stand yeah. by that, but I okay. was, my delivery was probably a little bit too. I was a little bit too, I had a little bit too much fun with it. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. But, yeah. but my argument was that look, that kind of relatable content is all the rage after like at some point, that true life stories, singing in 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 lyrics and all that was all anybody cared about. All the the love of R and B and all nobody wanted to hear that crap. They wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to hear real yeah. life. And yeah. Reese's album was the real life for like the alternative R and B set. Yeah, Tia's like real life for the standard R and B radio set. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, the, so I wrote that article about racism just because I was like, man, this album is so good. And I know amongst my group of friends, everybody loved it. Yeah. It was the one it was one of those albums that everybody universally loved amongst my entire friend group. And we yeah. all had a copy of it. We all, you know, talk about how good it was. You know, I got I, I was familiar with the producer, Doc McKinney, because of like Estro and all these other people. Like I, I followed yeah. his career after and.
1: You did it's, a lot of the weekend stuff as well, right? Yeah, yeah. House yeah. of Balloons, like, all the stuff yeah. I actually liked yeah. on the
0: weekend, like, early yeah. on. Um, early stuff, yeah. And I even wrote in that article, I was kind of curious as to why, like, Santi White, who goes by Santa Gold, did not keep this album for herself. Yeah. Because I'm like, this would have been, this was such a great album. And she's such a good singer and vocalist herself. I was kind of curious about that. But yeah. I guess sometimes you know when an album belongs to somebody else, you, you know, you let it
1: go. There's a generosity but, there, I suppose. But, yeah. Yeah. And and it's so because so, yeah. it, that album, for me, it's also about like black possibility. That's why I loved it. Like, here's another way to be black. And um, it's funny that you talk about Teedra Moses. I was also thinking about right before our conversation, the other albums that were imp- incredibly important to me. There is I don't know if you've ever heard of, of Kenna. Have you heard of Kenna?
0: Yeah, yep, sure have. Yep.
1: Yeah. So Kenna was another person who was incredibly important to me during this moment in time. He had an album that I can't kind of dropped in 2001. It didn't actually drop until 2003. Um, but I didn't know Kenna was black until like okay. a year after I started listening to the album. I didn't know about the Pharrell and Chad Association, Chad in particular of the Neptunes, had produced the entire album. Um uh, and that they had all kind of grown up together. So like Kenna's growing up with Chad and Pharrell and all those Virginia cats who kind of yep. like completely changed the game. And Kenna is doing some so it's part of the black tradition and black experience. Um but it's not, for whatever reason, kind of accepted as such. And then there's Janelle Monae, for example, as, as well. You know, I remember when she came out, she had this kind of like Android thing that yeah, was going on, which was Everybody such amazing
0: go, music. That Android incredible music,
1: wow. incredible. And I was like, there was a moment when she went on 106 in Park with uh, Diddy. You should watch this, and it's so incredible because, like, she is she is in character. And she's on, um, she's on Bad Boy at the point, which doesn't make much sense. But she's on Bad Boy, so Diddy like she has a record deal with Diddy, and she's doing the Janelle Monae like Android. I think her alter ego was called Cindy Mayweather or something. She's committed to the bit, and everybody else is like, "What are you doing?" And Diddy's like, like "A perfect method actor, yo. Like she she commits hard. She commits hard. Um, And I loved it. I loved it." and so I think for whatever reason, I've always been, and around this time that she dropped, uh, Barry Jenkins dropped, what is it, Medicine for Melancholy, his first feature. Yes, I um, love the black- that movie. I love Man, that movie. That is
0: such a great movie.
1: It's incredible stuff. It's about, you know, black love in San Francisco. And gosh, there's so much in that film that I related to. So I had this kind of like personal network of like black artists who were like pushing the boundaries and I think still working firmly in the Black tradition and the Black experience, but also in many important ways, extending that conversation as well. And um, those artists have been incredibly, especially as I've started to embark on creating my own work, like I see those folks. Reese is at the top of that list. Ken is at the top of that list. Um, uh, Janelle Monet, certainly early Janelle Monae is at the top of that list. People who were like fearless in, in sort of a, expanding the idea of what a Black aesthetic could be. Like these are incredibly important artists to me.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of artists back then in that, early 2000s to mid 2000s yeah. range. And it's funny you mentioned Janelle Monique because what you're talking about is the Metropolis suite, the chess whatever. exactly. And yeah, yeah. that was, I still remember hearing that the first time because of all her projects, honestly, that's the stuff I love the most. It was here. so rich in sound and yeah. texture. It like had me a hello, like her voice. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing what she it's did incredible. on it. It's like a five track EP, but it was amazing yeah. from start to finish. Like it never let up off the gas. Yeah. But people like, like Reese, uh, Donnie and his the Colored Section album, like there's all yeah. these artists who I think Chocolate, Algebra, Bassett, like all yeah. these people who I think if they were to come out later when we really start to lean in as a culture into black narratives and like just really enjoying ourselves, like the yeah. the lane that the the Ari Lennoxes of the world man is yeah. in, you know, like so Shea Butter Baby, like that's yeah. that's a black that period. Or Solange, like the, the, well, Solange the alternative is black, the alternative That's a good point. Yes, the alternative yeah. black artists that don't have to conform to some radio yeah. format, but get to just have fun and make music, right? And yeah. I think all of them were in that same vein, yeah. and it's just the time, because there was no social media to yeah. shepherd it. There was no social media yeah. to help push those things around, you know, to get to to help find the audience for it. Yeah. Right? Like, it was harder to find it was hard, if if a, if a if a magazine wasn't writing about it, uh, this is well before like message boards really hit. If all that stuff didn't, if there wasn't another avenue to get that word out, you know, it relied heavily on just people taking a chance. Nowadays, I think all of that stuff. I mean, Donnie's album in particular, the Colored Section, like that's such a very, it's such a good album. Yeah, and I think in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen that album goes gangbusters. Yeah you know omar like like artists like omar and all these people that just made such great music that i think was just the time was just early and that's where i think reese lives
1: yeah Uh, i think your social media point is a really good one because this is about moving beyond gatekeepers right like for some strange reason um reese gets a deal with mca who knows how it happens but she does right um she gets that deal uh the 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 singles start to come out they don't really hit i think it wasn't until the third single that she had a like a legitimate hit um But if this had happened in a moment when you have black people who are empowered, who have platforms who are talking about art, and they're sort of moving beyond the kind of typical conversations, there's no doubt that somebody would have said, hey, y'all need to check this out. And then people would have, you know glommed onto it and it would have become a bigger thing than it was. I think Solange also benefits from the fact that her sister is Beyonce, obviously, but you make a really great point. She's also in a really interesting position because the question is what is her identity as an artist since her sister is the biggest artist in the world. And she found a lane that's viable and interesting and incredibly important and useful. And she, I think is considered by all, most, if not all, like a a genuine artist in her own right. And, and so, and part of that is because, Again, there's a bunch of us on social media and a bunch of us who are having these conversations who are saying like she's doing important art. And it's a tragedy for the likes of Reese is still with us, Kenna's still with us. I hope we can have either a kind of reevaluation of the important work that they produce that has influenced so many of us or and or they can produce new work that we can and we can give them their flowers while they're still here because these people as an artist myself, I would not be here if I wasn't engaging with Reese's work or Kenna's work or Uh, And Janelle, I mean, mean, it's interesting because she is now, like, a major mainstream figure. She's an actress. And and so I I would love to talk to her about, like, her process. Um, Didn't she start in the AUC, by the way? Like, She, she... she showed yeah. up in the AUC. She wasn't okay. at
0: school in the AUC, but okay. you know her 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 band members are largely Morehouse band. There are there you know? you know? are, yeah. yeah. So they, they graduate. They were yeah. I remember you know. I, seeing them on campus. Yeah, I know absolutely. many many people who are who are involved in the musical creation process. Hers like on a personal level, just yeah. because of the Morehouse ties and the AUC yeah. ties. So she she moved to Atlanta and okay. kind of got in, from my understanding, with the Apache Apache Cafe crowd, and that's how uh-huh. she built her networks. And it just so happened that you know. She caught yeah. lightning in a bottle, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe that—that's probably not an accurate indicator, but her music was so good that eventually, you know, you look—you can't keep quality down, right? It's gonna—it's gonna, it's gonna no, rise. You'll no find um, yeah. You know, it's funny because that's part of the reason why I think even with VSB, I write about this black art so much because if I don't do it, who else is gonna do it, right? And yeah. I get tired, and this is tangentially related to Janelle Monae, Jadena's album 85 to Africa."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that album. I I. It's been a while since I've loved an album that much. Yeah. I wrote a very long review and discussion of it because I read a review somewhere else that I thought gave it short shrift. It was like a four hundred yeah. word review and I was like, This is trash. Like you clearly yeah. don't appreciate what he delivered here. So let me go do it. And I have yeah. a platform. Let me go use my platform for that reason. And I yeah. write about I'm a music person. I write about music all the time. And part yeah. that's part of the reason why I love the position that I'm in because, and I think the blog era did this. It allowed the people that actually enjoy this stuff to be the reviewers and the people to push it, right? It didn't, we didn't have to wait for the New York Times or Pitchfork or any of these other places to finally decide that this is worth listening to or to give it a proper review and a proper discussion. I'm like, well, we're black people and this is our music that we consume. I'm a fan of this stuff. Let me talk about it. And I can be critical of it too, but if it's good, let let me put the good stuff out there. So I love that the gatekeeper conversation in some spaces has started to leave. Like people reach out to us all the time about music. Yeah. I have this artist. I want to push. I love to push them through VSB or through the route. I love to do that. You know, they're probably having the same conversation at Pitchfork, but it's received differently by people who are literally the audience for the music.
1: Yeah. No, VSB is really, really important. I have to say, and when I read your piece about Reese, I spent a lot of time in the comment section and I felt this intense sense of community, there were so many people who like related to the piece and said, "Yeah, I listen to Reese too, and she was important to me." and And I felt okay. I wasn't the only person. I wasn't the, the only weirdo. And certainly, I wasn't because I was at Morehouse, and so a bunch of people were listening to Reese at Morehouse. But um, it felt because she's not part of this broader conversation, which is a yeah. tragedy, right? And so the fact that you. Um, sort of surfaced the album in a way, and, and talked about it, and your love for it. And then a bunch of people said, "Yeah, yeah, that was important to me." Was incredibly important to me as a consumer of her art. So kudos to you for doing that and for um, talking about this essential art as well.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And funny enough, yeah. she actually read the article I mentioned oh, to you. Great. But I ran into her at the the Roots picnic yeah. in uh, Philadelphia. I, I guess it must have been 2019. The last time we were all outside running around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I ran into her because I used to manage a nightclub in D.C. I managed uh, Live Nightclub, Bohemian Caverns, all that. So we've had her perform several times, but I didn't know her personally, whereas the owner of the the owner of the establishment did know her. And we were together through this picnic. He ran into her, saw her and it was like, yeah. oh, this is this is uh, this is Panama. She's like, you're the one that wrote the article about me. Oh, that's And I was great. like, wow. Like, that's so, great. you know, it's it's kind of cool to give people their flowers and they actually get them. But yeah. they internalize it because. You know, Reese is still making music, obviously, yeah. and she she's made music since then. But I'm glad for at least whatever, however much time it was, she got to feel seen Absolutely. by that, right? You know, she's like, yeah. oh, wow, people still remember this thing that I did yeah. that I put my heart and soul into. And they, they still yeah. appreciate it. They like it, you know, and, yeah. and I'm yeah. still, it's I'm, I'm, I'm going to anniversary it. of it.
1: So we got to, you know, it's the time to kind of give her her flowers and give her love. And we're still out here. We loved it. You know, we love it (laughs) present tense. Right. So absolutely. Before we, before we
0: go, like, what's your favorite song? Favorite, give me, you can give me your favorite three or four songs on the album. Gosh.
1: Um, I'd say ice King. I love that song. It always spears me in the heart. I don't know why. Um, let's see. I'm running through the track list in my head. Uh, is it, they say, yeah, they say vision. Yeah. I love that song. Um, see i think those are the two that i go back to a lot but let me be honest like i listen to the album front to the back you know i'm not you know kind of i know <laughs> just,
0: i know the feeling where i don't even need to know the, li- the know the yeah. song titles because I'm, yeah. I'm starting i'm starting yeah. a song one and i'm not turning it off until it gets yeah started.
1: it's it, the whole thing is important um yeah but I, one, um, I just, yeah. the ice king I, I really love the way that sounds the way it starts um and her, the, her voice I, she has such an evocative voice as well um she does yeah she, so. she really she really does uh yeah.
0: my favorite song to this day is Pro- tsunami it's like the, the the closing song on the album oh so yes. there's a hidden track there's a hidden yeah. track but the song the official closing song like her vocals on that song they yeah. hit me so hard like I don't yeah. it's such a it's such a the music is perfect her yeah. voice is perfect on it the the restraint she uses in order to to evoke emotion. Yeah. I mean, I can I listened to that when I started listening to it today. I actually yeah. went right to that song. So I got to listen yeah. to this one first. I got to do I got to do it before I listen to everything else. And that yeah. 700 mile situation like. The oh, yes. I, yeah, that's yeah. the one i was switching.
1: Yeah. 700 mile situation. Yes. Yeah.
0: That was a perfect <laughs> That's a real song.
1: song. Yes.
0: That song is so real. I mean, it, <laughs> a real it, song. it, it is an album full of, of, like I said, relatable content. But yeah, speaking directly to that same like this is real life. This yeah. is this is a creative way to talk about real life emotions and things like yeah. that that everybody can relate to. Same, and that's why I put her and Tidra in that same boat, just because, yeah. like, complex simplicity is such relatable content. Like, there's you yeah. listen to that, it's like, yeah, I get it, totally get it, one hundred percent. You know, yeah. And um, I'm still
1: download. I downloaded all. I downloaded all the Tia stuff. Like she had dropped an EP a couple years ago. I I love. Yep. She's still producing incredible and singing. Uh, incredible in an incredible way so i mean as we said before these people are still producing art and um, i'm glad they are yeah
0: well look i appreciate you coming on to 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 pass the peas to me and discuss this is this is fun like i got to to learn a lot um hell of a story you know what i'm saying like i said it started out like wow i did not see that coming we went from (laughs) i'm broke we went to i'm broke to oprah (laughs) in like you know 45 seconds yeah you don't get no it don't get no better than that so tell people where they can find uh you know whatever information That they need to get to to learn more about you and and find your books and art and all that stuff.
1: Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Tope Folarin, T O P E F O L A R I N. My website is Tope Folarin, T O P E F O L A F O L A R I N. dot com. Um, my book is available everywhere. So uh, if you're so inclined, pick it up. I think you'll like what you read. And again, thank you so much for uh, get having me on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation a lot.
0: Yeah. Appreciate. It. Thank you for coming. This is this is a great combo. So. um, Past the peas of Panama Jackson, Tope Florin, have a black one.
1: This, this pod podcast
0: podcast. I drop my verse in the salsa. My nigga, what you pounding for? You the one they made the mountains fall. Uh, be humble. The people help you up when you stumble uh, or when you fumble. Well, I take a fucking bad vibe and I channel it. In this life, I be out of man. You take a hit and be out of bed. It's all love. I ain't
1: judging you. But this is universe nudging you. Wake up, boom, boom.